I grow up, I want to be an engineer. When I grow up, I want to be an author. When I grow up, I want to be a fine art thief. When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I want to be a When I grow up, I want to be a Welcome to My Dilettante Life, where we hear from people who have cool or unusual jobs about their professional lives. I'm podcast host and resident dilettante, Hannah Binder. There's the framework of my podcast, which is talking to people with interesting jobs, um, but it kind of came out of this idea of various hobbies that I've had or jobs that I've been interested in doing. Um, and one of them is actually my mom and I one day want to host a multi-generational classical music radio show. And so when Jessica told me that she knew someone who did one, I was like, all right, I need to interview this person. That's very funny. That's not the sort of occupation that you run into every now and again, people aspiring to do a classical music radio program. That's pretty rare, but very cool. Well, so both of us, I mean, I come from a fairly musical family. My mom um, played the piano growing up, as did her mother. Um, I think all of her siblings. I think my aunts both played flute and my uncle played trumpet. My brothers played clarinet and trombone. Um, and I played and have recently started again playing the French horn. So we're, you know, we're well acquainted with classical music. And I think there's just something about like the very, I mean, we can get into sort of the feel of your show and if it fits, you know, what I tend to think of, but they're just so, um, even if the music itself kind of spans multiple feelings or kind of um, impressions, you know, there are definitely musical pieces that are not super tranquil and calming. Not everything is Brahms lullaby, but the hosts of these shows, when I was growing up listening to radio and listening to classical music stations, they were always just the most like peaceful, soothing, wonderful people that, and then they would play this beautiful music. And I think my mom has kind of a similar fun recall of her experience listening to those types of shows. So classical music radio announcers are not like say rock disc jockeys or anything like that. They definitely have a certain vibe, a certain sound. I don't know if I'd manage that, but I'm probably in the same neighborhood. I would imagine you're not like, you know, pressing the button that makes the like boing sound or, you know, or all those, you know, kind of shock jock things that you tend to think of with their sound effects. Never once done that in my life. It would be fun, but I've never done it. Not maybe the vibe that most people would expect from from your show. No. So yeah, so I am chatting today with Chris Morrison. Um, Chris, we're going to be talking about your work hosting a classical music radio show. Um, could you share a little bit with us kind of to begin with about your uh, sort of your professional status as it were currently, where you live, um, and then sort of what your background was that brought you to where you are right now hosting this show? Well, thank you, Hannah. Uh, thank you for having me on and having me on your podcast. Uh, it turns out your podcast is designed sort of perfectly for me because I, I consider myself a professional amateur. I've never really had a career path per se, but have just sort of followed the things that interested me over the corner uh, over the course of my life. Um, basics are I'm in Reno, Nevada. I was born in Oregon, but have been living in Reno for most of the last four plus, dec- five plus decades. 
And as far as music goes, unlike you, I did not come from a particularly musical family. We had a record player and we had a handful of records, but nobody played an instrument. Uh, I did only because my parents made me play the viola starting in grade school and I didn't like it. I did it for a while and eventually gave it up, but tended to associate music with drudgery and practice and it just didn't have much appeal. I was much more interested in sports really more than anything else. But then for whatever reason in high school, about age 15, I started listening to music and it was popular music at first. I'll date myself again by saying that Elton John was at the top of the musical world when I started listening to music. He was constantly on the radio. And so I first became an Elton John fan when I accumulated enough money to buy a record player in my own records. The first one I bought was Elton John's greatest hits. And I was a big Elton John and popular music fan for a while. Then I started graduating toward what used to be called, I think maybe it's still called progressive rock. That was through the influence of the radio. So uh, back then, once again, we're talking the 1970s. Uh, there was a lot of progressive rock out there. Rock music that was a little more ambitious. Instead of three or four minute songs, you would get you know eight, nine, ten minute long pieces. You know, really composed pieces. And you had groups like Yes and the pre-popular Genesis back when they did longer pieces. And the particular group that I gravitated toward was Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. I don't know if that's a familiar trio anymore. Uh, two of the members, unfortunately, Emerson and Lake are deceased. Carl Palmer is still around. But I became a huge Emerson, Lake, and Palmer fan. I, despite the fact I've never had a piano lesson, I really wanted to be Keith Emerson. I wanted to be this flamboyant piano organ synthesizer player and write these massive pieces of music. Well, anyway, one of the things that Emerson, Lake, and Palmer did was their own adaptations of classical pieces. And I guess because I was such a fan, I thought I would start investigating some of the classical originals of the pieces that they did. So my first classical recording was a three-record set, I remember. We're talking pre-compact disc days, honestly, so three records of Aaron Copland's music. Uh, because Emerson, Lake, and Palmer had done adaptations of a couple of Copland pieces, Fanfare for the Common Man and The Hoedown from the Ballet Rodeo. And I started listening through all the rest of the pieces in this compila compilation. Um, Appalachian Spring, the ballet Billy the Kid, Lincoln Portrait, some of Copeland's more popular pieces. And I really liked all of those. And I just very gradually, this is again, age maybe 16 by this point, started becoming a classical music fan and started accumulating to the extent that I could records. I couldn't afford too many. But I also started listening to classical music radio. It happened that here in Reno, Nevada, there was a radio station that played classical music a few hours a day. It's a station called KUNR, UNR standing for University of Nevada, Reno. It's the university's radio station. And they were only on the air 12 hours a day, 1 p.m. to 1 a.m. And they played classical music for four or five hours a day. And it was Although there were some actual, you know, employees of the university sort of overseeing the station, all of the programming was done by students. And so I was listening to basically university students presenting classical music and I was starting to, I was becoming really enthusiastic about the stuff and discovering, you know, I had never heard any Mozart before, but suddenly I'm starting to hear some Mozart. I'm starting to hear some Brahms, uh, hearing a lot more Beethoven, who is still probably my favorite composer if I had to choose one. 
and Bach and Dvorak and all of the biggies. And so by age 17, it's time for me to start attending the University of Nevada, Reno. And I don't, I don't remember what made me do it, but I decided a month before I started at the university, I would just walk into the KUNR building and say, can I go on the radio? And they oddly enough said, yes, as long as one, you're basically technically competent. And two, back then you had to get an actual broadcasting license from the Federal Communications Commission. It was a simple thing, but you had to attend classes and take a test and so on. But I did all of that. And the month that I started at the university, I went on the air at KUNR for the first time. And KUNR kind of became my life. I think I spent at least as much time at the radio station as I did at classes through my four years at the university. And it was just great fun. My friends worked there and I played classical music on the radio and was discovering more and more stuff and accumulating some knowledge about the stuff. While I was at the university, so this is maybe when I'm a junior at the university, the university decided to change the nature of KUNR. Instead of being just a student run station, it was going to become a proper professional radio station. They were going to become affiliated with National Public Radio, the National Radio Network, uh, public radio, non-commercial uh, network here in the country, and become a professional station, still with some room for students to do some work, but they were going to become an actual professional station and broadcast 24 hours a day and the whole thing. And so they did that while I was working there. And luckily for me, when I graduated from the university, I guess they liked me enough that they hired me on as part of the professional staff, which was good because I hadn't the slightest idea of what I wanted to do for a living and still don't and never have. Um, but I found my way into radio and did that for a while. That led me into teaching eventually, which we can talk about if you want to. That also led me into orchestra management, which I did for a long time. And over the years, I've been in and out of KUNR. Uh, now I'm back only because just in recent years, KUNR did what a lot of public radio stations have done, which is take off most of their music and go to all talk and news. But KUNR started a second station, KNCJ, NCJ being Nevada Classical and Jazz. So they would have an all talk station and an all music station. The music station was just pre-recorded stuff from elsewhere in the country. There was no real local content, but they decided they wanted to introduce some local content. And so they hired me about three years ago. And so now I'm back on the radio. I'm doing a little work for KUNR more on the sort of news end, but mostly I'm on KNCJ hosting a weekly classical music program. And there you are. That is um, a really fascinating history of your time at, at UNR, your time uh, growing up and, and who you were listening to. And I want to ask, so typically I ask this later in the, in the interview, but given that you got your start with KUNR really as a student when things were sort of more maybe loosey-goosey and you are doing it, it I, could, I guess I could say on like a hobby basis and yeah. then you also have now worked for them as a professional what would you say is the difference between doing something like this purely as a hobby and doing something like it you know being a radio a classical music a station host or show host um, mm -hmm. as a professional well things have changed a lot since when I started back when there was just radio, there was no such thing as the internet. There were no music streaming service, services. There was no Spotify. There, there was nothing like that. 
Nowadays, there are lots more options for people if they want to present music in some form or another. Uh, it could be on YouTube. A lot of people actually make their living on YouTube doing programs about music. Uh, doing Spotify playlists is another option. Um, there are many different possibilities. Uh, if you become a professional, the one thing that you have to count on is that people are counting on you. Uh, I have to do two hours of music programming every single week, Wednesday night from seven to nine, regardless of whether I have any ideas or not, or an inclination or not. Uh, most of my programs are dedicated to local music making. So I do interviews with uh, local musicians or people who are coming, coming into town to play classical music. And then I also do a new music program, new classical music program. Uh, but I have to do the two hours whether I'm prepared to or not. Doing it as a hobby is one thing and it can be great fun. And actually, even as a professional, it's still pretty fun. But uh, people are counting on you to do it and to do it in a really professional and engaging manner. It's one thing if you're a music fan and want to share some of your loves with you know, other people. But it's another thing if people are going to tune in every single week for two hours and expect you to know your stuff and present a range of stuff. Because if you're doing two hours every week, you can't just stick with your personal favorites. You're going to run out of favorites eventually. And I've been doing this broadcasting off and on for 30 years now. So I've had to broadcast a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily my favorite or necessarily stuff that I know really well. But if you have to do it, you have to do it. There are, again, lots of opportunities on the sort of hobby and fun level. If you're not worried about like income, there's even there are volunteer possibilities. Many communities here in the United States, at least, have community radio. In fact, uh, Reno has one, the Lake Tahoe area near where I am has one, and it's all on a voluntary basis. You don't get paid, but they exist to give people an opportunity to go on and broadcast on the radio. And if it's just fun you're looking for, that's a possibility too. There are lots of possibilities for fun, but in terms of professional broadcasting, it takes a little dedication, a little practice, and because there are lots of people who are interested in doing it, you have to prove to those who are hiring you and paying you that you know what you're doing and are responsible and able. You're listening to My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder, and today I'm interviewing Chris Morrison about his work as a classical radio station host. Well, and you're talking about not, you know, if you run through just your favorites, you're going to run out of music. That's mm -hmm. interesting because I think about uh, one, I guess this is, so this is something I've heard from my mother as well as other people who listen to classical music on the radio regularly, that there's sort of a balance, it, it almost sounds like, between not only playing basically like the, you know, the top 20 of classical music, so not just playing the same 20 pieces, but also not getting too into the really esoteric, really contemporary things where people might feel a little bit lost and might be looking to hear some of those familiar pieces, the ones from those, you know, dominant composers that you mentioned, Mozart, Dvorak, that we all kind of grew up with. So how do you find your balance where you're not always playing the same things, but you're also not kind of diving too far into the deep end? That's a very interesting question I've given a lot of thought to, both for the radio and then for the other thing that I've spent a lot of my life doing, which is orchestra management. 
I worked at the Reno Chamber Orchestra for close to 20 years uh, as executive director for three of those. And we were constantly faced with that too, because in the case of say an orchestra, you have to convince people that it's worthwhile to actually pay money to buy a ticket to come into the concert hall. Now you can do that by just focusing on the famous Beethoven and Mozart and Dvorak and Haydn and Bach pieces, but that's going to get kind of dull probably for the listeners and certainly for the musicians as well. Musicians as well. So it is a matter of striking a balance, playing some really familiar stuff, playing some more adventuresome stuff. And if you establish a trust relationship with your radio audience or with the ticket buying audience at the orchestra, they will follow you, follow you in some different directions. Uh, we did that at the Reno Chamber Orchestra. We premiered, did the world premiere of several pieces and the American premiere of some others. And I know on my radio program, I feature a fair amount of pretty obscure music, especially on my new music program. Um, it's a matter of establishing trust and having people be willing to follow you. So yes, you do have, you have to be conscient, constantly conscious of striking that balance. You could, I think, in theory, just devote yourself to the hits of classical music. And perhaps that would be interesting on, in the long term for some listeners. But I think probably not somehow. I have, have a feeling that people don't mind encountering some new and interesting stuff. And when I say new, you know, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony is famous. Beethoven's Fourth Symphony is less famous. Um, Franz Josef Haydn's London Symphony or Clock or Surprise Symphony, those are very famous pieces. Haydn wrote 104 symphonies. So there are all kinds of things that you can explore that will sound kind of like the stuff you're familiar with, not so weird that you're just gonna turn off the radio, but they will be pieces that you haven't encountered before. And yes, it's a, a balance that you constantly have to strike, but it's possible to do, especially if, if you have sufficient knowledge of the repertoire that you can draw from different things. Even in just putting together an hour of radio programming, I tend to want to play not one long, you know, 55 minute long symphony, but maybe three or four shorter pieces that might range in time from like the Baroque era, Bach and Vivaldi to something written today and maybe a couple of pieces in between. You can make that work and make it coherent and make it a good experience for the audience if you put the right pieces together. So it's basically being enthusiastic enough to find out about all of this stuff and then want to share it. Now, how did you, uh, you, you mentioned that you didn't really come from, you know, a, a particularly musical family. And it sounds like at least as a kid, you didn't really have a formal background or training in music performance, music theory, music appreciation. So, I mean, have you basically just gathered your knowledge from listening to lots of things? Or do you have some formal framework or formal education that kind of bolsters that or how do you how do you know what to put into your programming and how to present it to your listeners what gave you that insight this is a thing that i am not i'm not sure if i'm proud or embarrassed or both about but i've managed to make my living you know i'm in my very early 60s now and i've made my living around the world of music and I have no academic background at all. I have a bachelor's degree in English literature. Basically, I am almost entirely self-taught. And 
that's part of the fun. Luckily, if you're enthusiastic about it, you don't mind actually doing the studying that's involved. But I have found myself, you know, I've taught music appreciation and music history at the university level. And for the last 25 years, I think, I've been writing the program notes for the Reno Chamber Orchestra. If you go to classical concerts and get the physical printed program, you'll always find essays about the music that are that is featured in the program. They talk about the background of the composers and how why the piece was written, the circumstances, and what it sounds like, and things to listen for as you're listening. I just happened to be handed the opportunity of writing program notes for the chamber orchestra, and I've been doing it forever. And then the Reno Philharmonic, the other orchestra in town, asked me to do the same. So I'm doing writing and doing a podcast on music and I've been around classical music my whole life and I have absolutely no justification for doing so. It's just been luck uh, because I don't have any formal training. I do know a little bit about you know, music theory and such, but it's just studying it myself. I took a music appreciation class at the college level and that's basically it. I can read music a little, but I really have to think about it. But I've accumulated enough knowledge that I guess people trust me I guess. Well, and you have the perspective of someone who loves music, loves listening to music, loves discovering new music. And it sounds like that must be, you know, sort of infectious in a good way. Uh, I say that in the middle of a pandemic, uh, something that you can pass on to your audience so that if they themselves aren't already excited and uh, curious about listening to particular types of music, you can share that with them and, and either give them some of your curiosity or broaden their curiosity and enrich it. So it sounds like coming from the spectator perspective actually gives you a, a better way in some ways to connect with your listeners. That's actually exactly the justification I use for myself that when I'm writing, say, program notes, when I'm writing an essay, I just wrote about Beethoven's Ninth Symphony because the Reno Philharmonic just performed it. And that is a daunting thing. You know, this world famous piece of music that has been performed all over the world for 200 some, two, about 200 years. And I'm coming at it from a total fan perspective, basically, or an amateur perspective. But maybe that isn't such a bad thing. I can write about it from the point of view of an average concert goer. Most people that go to classical music concerts or listen to classical music radio don't have extensive background. They're not pro professional musicians themselves. They're just fans. And maybe that is something that I can reasonably bring is being a fellow fan and having some idea of what a fan might be interested in, in reading about Beethoven or listening to a new piece of music or whatever. So I, I think you hit it on the head. Maybe being just a fan or an amateur isn't the worst thing. That reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend once uh, about Eric Satie's Gymnopédie, which mm -hmm. I really love. It's like a beautiful, lilting, soft song that I could just, I don't want to listen to it for hours on end, but it's just right. a really beautiful song to listen to. And he went on this rant about Satie and how Satie basically um, took music and took it out of its position of something that you would devote your entire attention to. And it would be always this special thing that you would stop everything else to focus on and then really brought it into something that could be just a background, like Muzak, basically the dreaded Muzak. 
And he just was, he was such a, he, he just thought that Satie had done such a disservice to music. He himself was a professional musician. And I just sort of sat there listening to him. And at the end I was like, yeah, but I just really liked, you know, Petty. Like, I don't necessarily need to know all of these things about Eric Satie's music philosophy and how he may have, quote unquote, ruined classical music and music in general by making it this everyday thing that we take for granted. But it's still a really beautiful piece that I just enjoy listening to as a listener. I can't imagine what's wrong with that. <laughs> that's that's a perspective <laughs> that I would certainly take. And there's a lot of that now of, uh, one of the things when I deal with contemporary classical music, as I do, what you think of as classical music, quote unquote, a lot of contemporary stuff doesn't sound that way. There are a lot of people who freely, well, I think of one a woman named Caroline Shaw, who won, I think she's still the youngest person ever to win the Pulitzer Prize for music. She won it a few years ago. And at one point, she will write a piece for orchestra and chorus for the concert hall. And at another point, she'll write a sequence of songs that she will sing with a percussion ensemble. So there are a lot of people that move very freely from like imp improvised music to completely composed music, from what sounds like popular music to what sounds like classical music. And they don't worry about these labels so much. And I think the only thing that you really need to worry about is whether you like it or not, whether it counts as official classical music. I don't know that that was a meaningful distinction to make even back in Satie's time. Maybe it was. But nowadays, if you like it, listen to it. That's basically it. And as far as the concert hall goes, I know of this at the Reno Chamber Orchestra when we were there, um, when I was there. We did all kinds of different stuff. Some of it was very dissonant and very harsh and very modernistic. Some of it was really easy on the ears. Some of it sort of straddled the world of jazz. Some of it straddled the world of pop popular music. That's totally fine. I don't think we need to worry about such distinctions anymore, personally. So I'm with you. <laughs> Great. I'm glad we're on the same page. Uh, now, did you have like a role model or someone that inspired you originally to, to do this? Or is there someone nowadays that you think of and, and try to model yourself on? Depends on what part of my life you're talking about. For instance, program note writing. There are certain writers out there that I really do think of as role models in terms of being able to write about music that's still technically appropriate, but and technically correct, but still accessible to a wide range of potential readers. Uh, like you're doing right now, I spend a lot of time interviewing people. I've done hundreds of interviews before. In fact, this is, a, just as an aside, this is a really weird situation for me because I've been in your role lots and lots of times interviewing people. Only rarely have I been interviewed, you know, maybe half a dozen times, 10 times, and always that was when I was representing an organization. You know, I'd go on the television and talk about a concert that was coming up. I have never before been interviewed about myself. And it's very strange. But in terms of interviewing, I definitely have some role models because I have very clear ideas of what a good interviewer does. The most important aspect of it being listening. And I know not everybody loved Larry King. He was the famous radio broadcaster in America for 40 plus years and around the world, really. Uh, not everybody loved everything that he did, but 
he did some fundamental things really right. One of which is he listened to the people he was interviewing. Um, he asked follow-up questions. Uh, he didn't go in with preconceptions. And he kept it short too, which is a wonderful thing. If you follow the news like I do and watch alleged interview programs in the news context, very often the hosts think that they are the center of attention and they end up doing most of the talking. They have guests on so that they themselves can talk to the guests and lecture them. I really can't take that sort of thing very much. An inter a really good interviewer doesn't talk very much. A good interviewer asks good questions and listens to what the answer is and then follows up on that. And you're doing great, by the way. Uh, you're doing it just, just the way that I would like for it to be done. But I have encountered, even at KUNR, I'm not going to make, name names, but there was one particular guy. I really liked him. He's a good classical music broadcaster. But when he did interviews, he would have a list, a handwritten list of like seven or eight questions. And he would just go through those questions one by one by one by one. And his interviews ended up sounding completely disjointed because the person he was interviewing would say something really interesting in answering one of those questions. And you would anticipate a follow-up. Well, let, let me pursue that for a moment. He wouldn't do that. He would just go on to his next question. And I don't think that's the ideal way. Uh, an interviewer's job is to draw interesting stuff out of the subject of the interviewer, uh, of the interview. And that, that's, so I have, do have definite role models there. In terms of radio, I, it's a strange thing, and I guess maybe you just get used to it. Most people who do radio for a living or who do voice work for a living hate the sounds of their own voices, even if they, to you, they have the greatest sounding voice in the world, but you yourself hear your voice different from how other people hear it. And so some people say that I have a good radio voice. I don't think I have a good radio voice at all. I can't stand listening to myself and the process of like editing stuff that I have produced. Like yesterday, I was producing my radio program. And what I always do with both radio and the writing, I kind of do what I want and then figure out that it's way too long and cut it down to the right size. So for the radio program, I've got an hour and 59 minutes to fill. I cannot go more than a... I could go maybe a second over that or a second short of that. But if I, if I do more than that, I'm going to upset things badly. If I'm writing a program note, I've been given like 2,500 words. I can't do more than that. There is no space in the program. The radio program last night, I did what I thought was going to be an hour 59 program. And it ended up being a two hour and four minute program. And the pieces of music were too long for me to cut. So I basically cut five minutes of myself out of the broadcast, which which is fine, except that I had to listen to myself in real detail and cutting out, you know, a couple of words here, a sentence there. And I spent two or three hours probably trying to get this program edited down to the right length and just listening to myself talk. And I couldn't bear it. And I hope I don't have to go through that ever again. <laughs> uh, so I do have role models in terms of radio, but I can't I can't really emulate them because I don't really see myself as being a professional. I don't see myself as being a professional anything, really. As I said before, I'm a professional amateur. I just do stuff that I like to do. And fortunately, opportunities have presented themselves so that I've never really had to decide on a career path. Are you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter? 
My Dilettante Life is, follow us on your favorite social media sites to get announcements, behind-the-scenes info, and photos of cute dogs. Who doesn't like dog photos? You can find the podcast on Twitter with the handle at Dilettante Life and on Instagram under at my underscore dilettante underscore life underscore podcast. And as always, if you like the show, please spread the word. You know, it sounds like you are someone who is pretty flexible and sort of, I don't want to say rolls with the punches because I feel like that has a negative connotation, but that you can kind of take whatever comes your way. Even so, are there things that have surprised you about working in radio, working um, in, in classical music specifically? Well, one, I can tell you right off the bat, and it has continued to be a bit of a surprise to me. When you're a radio announcer, you become sort of a familiar voice and presence in people's lives. And the number of times I have had people just walk up to me, they hear me say a few words, and they say, oh, you're Chris Morrison. Oh, I'd love that. And they will rattle on as though I know who they are. And I have no idea. I've never met these people before. But you know, KUNR reaches thousands of people. And so I suppose I've become sort of a familiar voice and I've been on for a long time. So having people walk up to you on the street just because you've said a word or two and initiate conversations as though you know who they are and what their names are and stuff, that can be a little disconcerting. That would be one thing that's been a big surprise. Uh, another... This is another thing that's specific to radio, and I guess it's just something that you get used to. I've heard it time and time and time again. If you do your job perfectly, you're going to do it in silence. People, listeners, have an expectation of basically perfection, or at least you know, very, very high standards. So if you can go on in your job for a year doing, you know, really pouring your heart into it and doing a great job and never hear a word about it, However, if you make a mistake, if you mispronounce a word or a place name or something like that, or if you say that it's 58 degrees out when it's actually 78 degrees out, people will let you know. That's another thing you just have to get used to, that if you make any mistakes, you're going to hear about it. But if you don't make any mistakes, you may not hear a peep out of it. Uh, the other thing that, this is an anecdote that a mentor of mine, I want to make sure to mention Scott Faulkner, who was my boss at the Reno Chamber Orchestra for many years. He's a double bass player who also served as executive director of the Reno Chamber Orchestra for many years. And he's a great friend and really has been a mentor over the years. And he has shared a lot of really worthwhile advice. And this, I don't think originated with him, but I heard it from him. And it's something along the lines of people don't care what happens in the kitchen as long as the food is good. People don't care about all of the stuff that's happening in the background as long as what they are experiencing is exactly right. Nobody cares that I had to spend two or three hours editing myself to get my program down to an hour 59 last night. And with luck, nobody noticed the fact that after the fact I was editing all of this stuff out. I hope it remained a, you know, a nice presentation and without bad edits or anything like that. It sounded logical, sounded like it was meant to be that way, even though it wasn't meant to be that way. Uh, don't, and this was really true in the orchestra world when all kinds of things could go wrong in the lead up to a concert. 
uh, guest artists arriving late, fights between musicians, programs not arriving on time, the heat being off in the concert hall. I could go on for a long time about all of the things that could go wrong in the lead up to a concert. But once people are actually in their chairs and the musicians come out on stage and start playing and it sounds wonderful, that's all that actually matters. All that other stuff, it's incidental and it's fun and interesting and it's worth you know sharing a beer about after the fact, but it doesn't matter so much. So those are some of the things that that I have to keep in mind as I'm doing radio and things that I wouldn't necessarily, I would love for people just to come up to me on the street and say, boy, I love what you do every day. Your music is so great. And people don't do that. Not every now and then they do. But as long as they don't complain, I'm pretty happy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you're saying, in other words, you're somewhat the Casey Kasem of the Reno area, because I think when the man was alive, I would have recognized his, his voice anywhere. Uh, but hopefully you're not quite as as mobbed by fans, even if you would like to be as the man probably was. Uh, I'm, I'm also in common with a lot of radio people. I am a very introverted person, so I don't mind not being noticed. Um, I don't know that I would quite qualify as Casey Kasem, but apparently I do have a, rec a voice that's recognizable enough that people bring it up a lot. I don't get it, but I accept it. <laughs> Good. And I must say, I, I do find you have a lovely voice. So I, as, as much as I empathize with you about the excruciating pain of listening to yourself, I just, I think you do have a great voice for radio. Thank you. I, I, I do try. I try to at least mo modulate my voice well and to speak clearly. And another thing that you have to do in the classical music world, you have to deal with a lot of foreign languages. So being able to enunciate and at least get somewhere close to the right pronunciation really does help. And you can hear it if a person doesn't enunciate particularly well. I maybe go too far, far in the other direction in terms of trying to get every word out very clearly and easy to understand and easy to hear. But if you hear somebody on the radio that isn't that way, that slurs their speech a little bit or doesn't quite enunciate or sometimes drifts towards and then away from the microphone so you lose words sometimes it's very very noticeable okay i have to ask then what can you think of at this time the hardest either piece of music or composer's name that you have ever had to pronounce on your show oh that's a good one um one i had to practice a lot was one actually that was on my program last night a great lithuanian composer named jibokle marginaitita when you're just faced with that in print, you would have to think for a while about how it might be pronounced. And in the olden days, you didn't have resources like YouTube and such. I was able to go on YouTube and hear her pronounce her own voice. 30 years ago, you would have had to guess or look up a Lithuanian pronunciation guide and sort of figure it out. So Zhibokli Martinaitita is a good one. Uh, Eastern European names sometimes leave me behind. Krzysztof Pendereski was one. Uh, Witold Dutoswowski is another because the L is actually pronounced more like a W in his last name. Uh, there are certain languages. My French accent is horrible. So anything that's in French, I'm going to sound kind of stupid saying. 
Uh, my German isn't too bad, fortunately. My Spanish isn't too bad. But there, there are a lot of such names out there that are sort of tongue twisters. And you just have to practice a lot. That's one thing that you have to do in, that's another thing you have to do in radio is be able to read a script and sound like you're not reading. If you're reading it for the first time, it's going to sound like you're reading and figuring out what the grammar is and where the emphases are supposed to be. And then when you come across a name that you don't recognize, you have to puzzle out on the fly what it's supposed to sound like. So reading the stuff that you're going to be saying a few times beforehand is always a good idea. And in the classical music world, I spend a lot of time on YouTube, I have to admit, looking up, finding videos of uh, string quartets with an unusual name or individuals with an unusual name, pianists, composers, whatever, uh, and making sure that I get them right, or at least as close to right as I can. You can go too far, this is my opinion, you can go too far in the other way and try to sound absolutely authentic in every language that you do. And that ends up sounding a little, to me, pretentious. Uh, there, there, I think there's a happy medium to be struck there. I am American. I speak English. I don't have other languages. I can speak a tiny little bit of Spanish and a tiny little bit of Japanese, and that's really about it. So I have to do my best. And if I get it 90% of the way, I'm happy. 100% of the way just sounds a little peculiar to me when not being said by a native, that is to say. Other, others feel differently about that, but that's my opinion. So when you're reading your, your program notes, are you reading sort of word for word? Do you write out an entire script or do you kind of have just notes and then you expand on them into complete sentences or whatever feels right in the moment? Back in the days when I was doing just a daily radio program, it used to be that I was on from like 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. I didn't really have the opportunity to script that all out. So that would be more spontaneous and on the fly. When I'm doing like news broadcasts on KUNR now, I don't tend to script those out so much. But when I'm doing my Wednesday night programs, every single word is scripted. Uh, and this is another area where I have my particular way of doing things and not everybody shares it. Some people would much prefer, if you're, they're listening to classical music on the radio, their opinion would be shut up and play the music. Don't talk so much. Don't give so much background information. Don't drone on and on, which I do sometimes, I have to admit, because I, I personally think that one of the things that I can bring to it is providing some of that background and some of that information especially if you're talking about contemporary compositions, it helps to know a little bit about why the piece was written and why it sounds the way that it does and the techniques that are used. And if you're encountering a brand new composer, it's nice to know when they were born and a little bit about their background, maybe the fact that they were you know, really close friends with Beethoven or something like that. I'm always on the lookout for sort of entryways for people to get into the music. And maybe I talk a little bit too much but yes, I do tend, especially for my the regular Wednesday night program that I do now, I script every single word. 
That's interesting because you you were mentioning earlier, you know, Spotify, other music streaming services. So people can, if they really just want to listen to piece after piece, they have the tools to do that. So it does seem like the value that you bring are those interesting tidbits. And having just read some of the John Cage Wikipedia entry today, I there are definitely some really interesting facts about composers' lives or performers' lives that uh, if you can dig those out of somewhere and, and teach me about them while I'm listening to the music, that's so much the better. Yeah, admittedly, you know, do, delivering a 10 minute lecture about a piece of music that's four minutes long probably is not going to serve anybody's interests very well, but a little bit of background doesn't hurt. And I could even broaden that out to the fact that just normal radio like I do, you would think with all of the alternatives out there, streaming services and so on, um, you would think that normal radio wouldn't have as much of a chance. Once upon a time, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, that was the option that you had. Now you've got all kinds of options for delivering your music to you. And yes, you can go on to Spotify and just listen to music with no commentary at all. Or you can seek out services where there is a little commentary. But despite all of that, actual local radio like I do continues to exist and do pretty well. It's not quite like it was you know, 30 or 40 years ago, but the station I work to work for seems to be doing pretty well financially. I mean, it's a nonprofit public radio station, so they have to fundraise, but the fundraising has been successful and there's still a good listenership. There are certain things that a local station can do and an announcer like me can do perhaps. Uh, if you want to just listen to classical music, there are lots of ways to do that. But if you would like to hear, say, musicians from your own community, both talking about what they do and then actually doing what they do, my program is basically it. And there, there is room, there's room for both, I think. So given that local radio, uh, unlike what people might believe, is not a dying medium, what other misconceptions have you found that people tend to hold about radio in general, but also about working in radio as an announcer like you do? Well, if if somebody were just now getting started in radio, I think one thing that might surprise them, or maybe it wouldn't, is that there's no money to be had. Radio announcers are very poorly paid in general, unless you're at you know the very top of your game. Um, that would be one thing. Another is that it's easy to do because ideally, if you know, you're pretty good at what you do, it sounds very smooth and very easy, uh, but it isn't always. Uh, for instance, I've just been interacting with KUNR, one of the stations I work for, because I'm going to get trained up to do the early morning news program, which I did in past years, but haven't done for a while. I am currently trained up to and and sometimes do the evening newscast. And if you just listen to it, it sounds very smooth and very integrated. And But if you're actually there, you've got three computer screens going at once. You're getting some program information and programming from one computer. You're getting all of the news from another computer. You're getting road conditions and weather forecasts from another. You're inserting into the National Public Radio program all kinds of different stuff at different times during the hour. You're doing your own newscasts and trying to prepare them. So it isn't as easy as just, you know, bringing in your stack of CDs or your records and just playing them and talking. Uh, you can do that, 
but it might not be too interesting. And if you're doing something a little bit more elaborate, like an all things considered or a morning edition sort of program from National Public Radio, there are lots of moving parts. It's not like rocket science, but it does require a little bit of planning. So it's not as perhaps simple as people who are good at it make it sound. Well, and like you said, you know, ideally we don't hear how the sausage gets made when you do your job well. <laughs> exactly. And you might be a frantic wreck behind the scenes, but as long as you come on and say, it's 5.04, I'm Chris Morrison with KUNR News. And you go on and read your newscast and everything sounds fine. And when you go to the local reporter doing their thing and they come in right when they're supposed to, not with a five second silent gap between the end of your voice and the beginning of theirs, whatever might be going on in the background, as long as it sounds good coming out of the radio, that's really all that counts. So is there anything that you wish people knew about your job and what you do? I I suppose, I don't know, maybe it's just my ego speaking. I wish people knew a little bit more about how much work is involved in making it all happen, uh, especially on the music knowledge end. I, Although I don't have formal education, I've read a lot and listened to a lot. And I've accumulated enough to be able to you know, present music in different ways. But it didn't come easily. I do not have naturally a very good memory. It might seem otherwise listening to me sometimes because I can sometimes retain certain dates. I can easily tell you Beethoven was born in 1770 and died in 1827. And, you know, that sort of thing. But there was a lot of work that went into getting up to that point. So especially... I think classical music maybe is particular in that way. It does require a certain amount of knowledge and background and skill and preparation to be able to do it and to sound good doing it. I guess that's really the only thing that's, but again, that's probably more my ego speaking than anything else. <laughs> uh, well, and I know, so you, you've mentioned, you know, kind of the, for lack of a better image, nails going down a chalkboard aspect of listening to yourself over and over and the very um, intricate kind of fine tuning and, and the amount of work that goes into it. What would you say are some of the coolest parts of your job or what have been maybe the coolest experiences you've had working in radio? Well, I, I would broaden it out to include both radio and orchestra management because it's been all kind of one in the same. The idea that a mere music fan I had an experience recently backstage at a Reno Phil concert. One of the things that I do among my various things is I co-host the pre-concert talks prior to the uh, concerts at the Reno Philharmonic. The uh, conductor of the orchestra, Laura Jackson, and I go out and we talk about the music and sometimes we'll have a special guest, the piano soloist or whatever. And I was talking backstage with, I won't give names because they don't know that I'm sharing this anecdote, but one of them is the director at or a director at our local museum of art and another has a very high position at the nature conservancy and we were talking about our jobs and how stressed we were and all the different things we were doing and we found in the course of our conversation that each of the three of us all three of us had bachelor's degrees in english literature all of us basically were doing jobs that had no relationship with the formal education that we got 
And that's one of the things that is coolest about my experience is the fact that I'm just a music fan. I don't have any actual accreditation for doing anything that I do. And yet I've been able to, I've met all kinds of amazing people. I've had great experiences with unexpected people. Do you, you know who Leonard Nimoy is? Played Mr. Spock on Star Trek. I got to ride in a limousine with Leonard Nimoy once because he was, he was a guest with the Reno Chamber Orchestra because our executive director, Scott, knew him, had met him. And I've hung out with, you know, world famous musicians and just chatted with them. And I've interviewed them. And I've heard these amazing people come to Reno and perform. I've had the chance to go backstage at the San Francisco Symphony. A great pianist, Emmanuel Axe, who's still active and a wonderful pianist. I happened to be backstage at the San Francisco Symphony one day. I was just waiting for the person who was, had escorted me back there to finish up with something. And there was a guy in a red tracksuit just standing in the hallway, not doing anything. And it was Emmanuel Axe. And I rec recognized him right off. And I went over and introduced myself and said how much I enjoyed his pianism. And we ended up talking about our mutual love of baseball for a few minutes. Because I'm a big San Francisco Giants fan. I was going to be going to a Giants game, I think, the following day. And he had just been to a Giants game. Now, I've had all of these great experiences and worked around a thing that I love, music, without really having any background in it. I've just been very fortunate that way. And I've happened to be in the right place at the right time a lot of times. And just I followed whatever path. It, I don't even know if it was a path. Just sort of followed my nose into different stuff. And it's worked out okay. So given that you're a professional amateur, would you say that you see yourself as an expert? No. Absolutely not. <laughs> Especially, you know, if you're talking about the world of classical music, you're talking about hundreds of years of music and hundreds of composers and stuff. There's, there's always, no matter what level of knowledge you've attained, there is always an infinite amount more to learn. And pretty much anybody, I think, would say that. So, no, I'm definitely not an expert. I know a little something about it, but there, I'm learning new stuff every day. That's probably the thing that I value most in life is just learning new stuff every day. I would push back on that a little bit. This is a question that I ask most of the people that I interview. And I think um, the idea that you have to know an exhaustive amount in your field isn't a necessity for being an expert. And I, I have been, I wouldn't say surprised by some people uh, you know, either classifying themselves as experts or not. But I do think it surprises people to think about it because unless you've had an experience where someone who you see as knowledgeable in your field then unequivocally states that they think you are an expert, you know, that's that's hard and fast evidence that I think makes people reevaluate, oh, maybe I am an expert. But unless you've had one of those experiences, then I think we often, especially people who tend to you know, have maybe a, a questioning, inquisitive mind, we do tend to think, oh, there's always more out there that I can learn. Um, have you had one of those moments there where someone says that they see you as an expert, even if you don't see yourself as such? Well, I have, I can't point to any specific experience, but it, it has happened more than once that I've had, like, prof music professors at the University of Nevada, Reno, 
come to me to verify information about a composer or a piece of music. And they should know way more about that than I do and probably do, honestly. But people have taken seriously whatever level of knowledge I've attained. I, I, I still hesitate to call myself an expert despite your very nice words about it. And I do intellectually agree with them, but emotionally, I still want to fight back. <laughs> That's okay. We'll, we'll let it be. So what would you be doing if you weren't working in the field that you are now? And I, I mean, like completely out of left field, something you've never engaged in, but have always been interested in. That, that is a hard one. Uh, I've always had an aspiration, but this is actually a sort of carrying on from what I have been doing. I have always had an aspiration to write popular books, not scholarly books, but popular books about music and art history. Because I think that's probably what I should have been was like a musicologist or an art history major or something like that, because that really was, is what interests me. So being a full-time author and maybe a successful one uh, would be one. Uh, world Traveler would definitely be something high on my list because I've had so few experiences getting out of the United States. And when I have, I have eaten them up. Our mutual friend, Jessica Escobar and I uh, went to Japan five or six years ago, right, right about six years ago now. And that was an amazing trip. And we spent almost three weeks there and barely scratched the surface of what we could have seen and done. So returning to Japan and exploring more of Southeast Asia as I did once before in a trip a few years before that, I had this sort of out of left field anecdote, but I had this one really strange experience that I've never had duplicated before at the relatively small town of Luang Prabang in Laos. It was part of a Southeast Asia tour that I went on. And we went to Luang Prabang, which is known for its uh, Buddhist temples. It's a city of, I'm thinking 40,000 or so, not a huge town, but filled with temples. And I felt very free to wander around that city. I don't know any Laotian. I mean, I can say Sabaydi, which is sort of the generic hello in Laotian, uh, or in Lao, I should say. Uh, but I wandered around Luang Prabang, and it was almost as though I had been there before. I, it's not like literally I knew what was around the corner, but I felt so at home and so comfortable and familiar there that wandering around, I'd never doubted that I would be able to find my way back to my hotel. And I was open to fresh experiences, even not knowing the language of the people that were surrounding me. I would love to have more experiences like that because I think they're out there to be had, but you have to be able to, you have to be in a position to be able to travel more and one thing that I have found in my particular career course is, as I mentioned before, the accumulation of money has not been a high priority. So traveling is a little bit more of a stretch for me than it might be, but it is something I want to do more of. But in terms of completely out of left field, I've been so obsessed with music and in general artistic creation all my life. That's mostly what I pay attention to, and that's mostly what has always interested me. So I, I think I've inadvertently kind of fallen into the right path for myself and don't have a major aspiration to do other things. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
what what would you like to be asked about your career in both radio and classical music? What would I like to be asked? Well, it's not something I would put into a podcast, but I would love for people to ask about some of the experiences I've had with some of the individuals that I have worked with over the years, because I I have some great stories to tell about people <laughs> you would know, but I shouldn't really share them publicly. So that's what I that's what I would say could be asked about what I would like to be asked about over a beer privately without microphones and cameras around. Tell me about this person or tell me about your experience with that person. That would be fun. So what you're saying is um, maybe in, say, 50 years, we should look for a tell-all book written by Anonymous that will have been released posthumously, containing all the most salacious bits of stories about famous musicians. Well, I... I don't have too many salacious anecdotes, but I have enough to make to maybe fill a book. So, <laughs> yep, we'll see how that works out. But, but anything else that you want to add before we kind of finish? Only that it has been a pleasure to speak with you, Hannah. This has been a, a great experience. Like I said, I don't have, I have not had the previous experience of actually being interviewed about myself before. So it's been a very odd thing, but, but very enjoyable, I have to say. And as I said before, I love the idea of your podcast just in general, the idea that you're speaking with people with these interesting paths that they've found for themselves, sometimes inadvertently, sometimes with great intention, but sort of out of the mainstream of what you would expect. There are so many of those great stories to be told, and I'm glad that you're, you're telling some of them. So thank well, you very much for experience. Of course. When I grow up, I want to work in music production. I want to do recordings and help bands find their sound and discover their edge. I want to be the guy in the background, the driver of the bus, the go-to for problem solving. I want to be the guy that keeps the band together. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of My Dilettante Life. I'm your host, Hannah Binder. The podcast theme music was composed by Anna Bradley, with sound editing assistance from Yuli Anerson. The podcast logo was designed by Ashley Burke with help from model Ivy Bean. Thanks to our guests and to all our listeners for tuning in. If you have follow-up questions for a guest, send them in for a chance to be featured on an upcoming Audience Asks segment. My Dilettante Life is available wherever you get your podcasts, as well as directly at hannabinder.com slash mydilettantelife. That's H-A-N-A-B-I-N-D-E-R dot com slash my dash dilettante dash life. Tschüss!